Welcome to See, Hear, Speak podcast, episode 28. In this episode, I have a candid post-COVID conversation with Sarah Hart about nature versus nurture, open science, and scientific Twitter. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to check out www.seeherspeakpodcast.com to sign up for email alerts for new episodes and content, read a transcript of this podcast, access articles and resources that we discussed, and find more information about our guests. And please don't forget, if you enjoy this podcast, subscribe and leave a positive rating in Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. Welcome to episode 28 of See, Hear, Speak podcast. I'm Tiffany Hogan, your host, and I have today guest Sarah Hart. And I will have us start by having you introduce yourself, Sarah. Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Tiffany. Um, so my name is Sarah Hart. Yes, I'm a associate professor at uh, Florida State University. I'm in the Department of Psychology there, specifically developmental psychology, and also a faculty affiliate of the Florida Center for Reading Research. Fantastic. Well, I'm glad to have you. Um, I was just telling Sarah prior to starting recording, this is the first one I've had post-COVID closures, and the likelihood of a child coming into this recording is very high. Uh, probably for both of us, <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> we're both working at home now, um, and I have no childcare. I don't know. Do you have childcare, Sarah, at all? No, not right now. Not well. No. Yeah, I've talked to some colleagues um, who do have some kind of um, intermittent childcare. So I just always like to know, like, what is your situation? But now my situation is I have three kids, three, five, and fourteen, that are home with me. And I also have my husband who is also working full time. So it's fun times. There is no rest. It's just relentless. But the podcast is something that I really wanted to do. At first, I said I was going to just not do it during COVID closures, but I really missed it. And we had this scheduled anyway a long time ago. So I was glad that you could be the first one post COVID. Um, and, you know, we'll see how that goes. Yeah, yeah, I feel very special. Right? You should. Very special. <laughs> and because the last one wasn't recorded, what I say, February, um, and in COVID time, that's 10 years ago. So now we're back and um, just glad to be back to it after this 10-year break post-COVID. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't, I was just, <laughs> I was hesitating because I actually don't remember what I did in February. Right. <laughs> 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 like, yeah. Was, I see my was working somewhere. <laughs> so I mean, yeah. <laughs> I know. I remember early on, I saw one of those uh, things going around social media that said something like, uh, "You know, it's been a hell of this week's been a hell of a year." <laughs> yeah. That's I thought that pretty much summed it up. So yeah, but you know, it's interesting. Just I was, you know, in preparation, just looking at all your work, and of course, you are so prolific, and we've known each other for a long time, long time. We have some fun stories we probably won't share on the podcast from staying together in Germany a long time ago. A decade ago. It was a decade. Was that the first time I was in Germany? Yeah. Wow. Bless our... Yeah. Decade. That was a long time ago. That's crazy. Uh, but anyway, I was looking at your genetic work, which I, I most know you for, and but you've done so much other work too. But I was particularly interested in the concepts you've been writing about. Um, I love this title of this paper. Let me pull it up. Nurture might be nature, cautionary tales and proposed solutions. I thought that was really cool. 
And I thought I'd start by having you tell us a little bit about just overall the work you do on nature versus nurture and, and what you were, what is your proposal about trying to really separate those two out? Yeah, so yeah, in general, I um, kind of one of the, you know, one of the areas of my work, like you said, is kind of using twin studies or behavioral genetic methodology to kind of um, disentangle, yeah, the nature and nurture, so the genetic and environmental influences the best that we can. And so I focus mostly on kind of understanding reading and math development and, um, and what, you know, how do genes and how do children, you know, the context around children, how do they influence that kind of reading and math development. Um, and uh, so a lot of my bread and butter work is what I call it, is using twin studies to look at that. Um, and probably what I'm best known for is specifically trying to identify, you know, we say that there's nature and nurture, both matter, but what is actually in that nurture and kind of identifying specific aspects of children's context um, that are directly influencing them outside of the confounds of genetics. So my work at least tells me that, you know, genes can confound, you know, how people interact with their environments around them, and even how environments are formed around them. And so I'm really interested in saying, okay, if we can control for the genetic effects, what is the direct role of the environment on children's reading and math development? And so that was in part that um, the cautionary tale paper you mentioned. Uh, yeah, that's a, a paper that I've been writing um, with my wonderful former student, uh, Callie Little, uh, and uh, a great colleague, Elsha Van Bergen. Uh, we wrote that paper together while I was on sabbatical, actually, and we were all together in Amsterdam. Uh, and, uh, and thinking through, um, and trying to tell mostly developmental psychology, but education as well, to kind of, kind of remind our colleagues that are outside of behavioral genetics that uh, children's contexts on their own are not free of genetic influences, that you know, people tend to surround themselves in environments that are correlated with their genes uh, or, um, you know, environments kind of happen to some individuals based on their genetic predisposition. Uh, so, for example, let's think about children in a classroom, right? So a child who maybe has a genetic predisposition towards being more outgoing uh, and more willing to raise their hand will probably be more likely to receive direct instruction from their teacher because they'll raise their hand more often in class and get their questions asked. And so the, the kind of the individualized instruction that that student might get is potentially correlated with their genes simply because their genes were kind of, uh, you know, uh, you know, involved or associated with, you know, their willingness to raise their hand to ask that question. So that's this idea, uh, you know, formally in behavioral genetics, that's called a gene environment correlation, so that genes and environments are correlated with each other for various reasons. And so we wrote that paper um, to, you know, just remind our colleagues that that exists, that things that you think are just purely contextual, like parents reading to their children in the home, actually also have genetic confounds. But we thought what the novelty of our paper was, this is not, this has been said before, uh, but the novelty of our paper is we talk through different designs that can be used to start to disentangle those influences. So all the way from, you know, get genetic information from your participants down to statistical controls, which you might use in your models to kind of help you disentangle what's a direct environmental impact, um, like, 
you know, parenting or, uh, you know, uh, teacher effects from kind of the genetic compounds. So it's one of the methods to measure the parent's ability. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So we're calling that the familial control method. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's, um, it's definitely not ideal. Uh, and we're actually working through, we got a, a revise and resubmit for that paper um, right now. And we're working through some uh, reviewer suggestions of how we can really make it clear how, when that works and when it doesn't work. Um, but the basic idea of it is if in um, studies that are interested in, you know, what, uh, what parental aspects are influencing their children, uh, right, we know that parents, uh, you know, supply that, you know, they, in, they transmit genes to their children and they transmit the environmental influences to their children. Um, but if you, if you're interested in, say, like, you know, what parents are doing in the home that's related to math you know, home math environmental or and uh and so you measure, you know, what parents are doing in the home that's frequently like uh how you know how often do you bake with your child? Uh do you, you know, practice math, you know, counting with them? Uh you know, if you measure those things and then you look at children's outcomes, uh if you find a positive correlation, which we likely will find, that the more you know, greater frequency of those activities is related to kind of higher children's math ability. Well, it's confounded with the fact that parents who themselves are better at math are more likely to do those things in the home. And so what we suggest is you can um, measure the parents math ability themselves in the for in themselves and put that in as a statistical control um and then kind of the left the extent to which there is still a correlation between the whole math environment and math outcomes in children would suggest that um, that is a more of a direct environmental effect um and kind of removing that genetic confound that makes a lot of sense to me i think about this recently with one of my three sons seems to be more musically inclined but i am not musically inclined at all so then i think about how you know, if you're a parent who maybe loves music, right, then you may choose to have an environment that has lots of music, but it may be because you yourself are so musically inclined. So it may not be that the environment itself was, you know, oh, all this music stimulation, but it could be because, yeah, the parent had such an interest or inclination themselves. And so then thinking about if you aren't that way, what type of environment can you create that still stimulates your child's, you know, interest? Uh, but then I do have this kind of feeling that it maybe won't be as organic or as frequent as if I had that interest, you know, so it makes a lot I would, of sense. I, yeah, I would, that's what I would, you know, hypothesize. Yeah. Um, I guess what I want people to do, like, I think that, that, you know, that's an interesting research question is I want, we just, you know, in writing this paper, we just want people to realize it's a potential confounder. Uh, and that we should be kind of more careful in our discussion of these effects of finding, yeah, this, you know, musical environment is related to better musical ability. Because um, uh, one of the one of the ways we pitched it in the paper, at least, is that it actually can sometimes lead to a parental blaming. Yeah. And I think also a lot of guilt. And that's probably really important right now in a COVID time, you know, that if if I'm not doing these things, if I'm not reading, you know, explicitly reading to my child, you know, and, and asking lots of comprehension questions as we're reading and doing this all the time and trying to, you know, supplement what schools normally do, then it just feels like, 
you know, that these environmental pieces were so, so important. And if, if they're not, if you're not doing it as a parent, it can lead to guilt. Mm -hmm. And I, what I, at least from a behavioral genetics perspective, have found is that the direct kind of causal effect of the environment is much lower than um, when you take out the genetic compound. So you then find that there's more influence of genetics than we maybe previously thought? Is that the, what, what you, is that what it is? Uh, no, I think for a while we've known kind of how much in general genes matter for any given kind of outcome. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the rough estimate of like around 50% or 60% for uh, in the area that you and I work in, mm -hmm. kind of, uh, you know, reading and a general achievement and language, that's usually where the estimates are of kind of overall genetic influences to individual differences in those areas. Mm -hmm. um, so less, less that, not less of a like, you know, genes matter more than we originally thought, because I don't think that's necessarily the case, but more just you know, when we're trying to really kind of delve into how the environment is impacting children. Mm. Uh, let's keep in mind that there is, especially when we're talking about problems, uh, you know, that, that genetic compound can be there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's, it's really just bringing light to the complexity of the issue. And we, we want, yeah. To, yeah, that makes sense. It's like, you don't want to just say, oh, just put them in a good environment, but you know that it's going to be more of the interaction between how that environment is created by their genes and then how they interact with the environment. Even if it is a quote unquote good environment, what is driven by the child? Yeah, I think so. We've dealt with this a bit in language disorders too, because early work, for instance, really focused on, you know, what was the the environment like for the child who had language uh, disorder and had difficulty learning language, their primary language. And it was interesting because some of that work showed, and I'll dig that out for our podcast listeners so it can be on the resources, but some of that work showed that, uh, you know, with the same parent who had children, you know, let's say one child had language disorder and one didn't, it was actually that the parent was producing less language with the child with language disorder because they were being actually responsive to that child's language ability. And if you looked at how that same parent interacted with the child who didn't have a language disorder, you saw that there was a difference. And so instead of saying, well, you know, hey, the data clearly shows that a parent of a child with language disorder, and most time it was mothers they were looking at, um, then they would, you know, you can't say, well, that child, that parent just talks to that child less or isn't as interactive. It was really that it was the genetic predisposition of the child that was driving the parent's response. And I thought it was really creative to look at how the parent was interacting with different children to try to address this this question and it's yeah. something that really sank in and it, it really tried to address this guilt factor. Um, uh, yeah. So that is like, the, it's called an evocative gene environment correlation when the child evokes an environment to mm -hmm. them. So that's the case of that teacher example I gave and what you just said. And I did this paper when I was in grad school. Um, it's in, buried in this journal that nobody can get to. So I don't think anybody reads it, but it was really an interesting design uh, and speaks to this exact same. I think you're gonna be interested in it. So I'll quickly tell you about it. Yeah. Um, so uh, in the, the twin project that I was training on as a PhD student, um, there was, uh, uh, it was in-person data collection with the twins. And when you uh, study twins and you send testers, you know, to children's homes to test them or, and it, you send two testers 
because there's two kids, right? They're twins. Uh, and so um, in that study, they had done some um, uh, uh, an activity that was trying to evoke language. I don't remember what the language measure was meant. Like there was a language specialist who worked on the project who she was interested in looking at language outcomes in the twins. But what we realized, well, what she realized, and I just did some analyses, um, was that you had two genetically unrelated testers who were testing twins, right? And about half the twins were identical twins, so were genetically identical, and the other half were, you know, like regular siblings, about 50% genetically related to each other. And so had two, what she did was she, it was all tape recorded. And so she measured the speech production of the testers while interacting with the twins and looked to see if testers' speech, the two unrelated testers, if it was more highly correlated when they were speaking with identical twins. Ooh. And they and she and we did find that. That's so, so when yeah, so when testers are, you know, testers own uh speech patterns, so she was looking at like, you know, typical salt coding mm -hmm. outcomes, right? Uh, so like total number of words and mean length of utterance and those types of things was more highly correlated between testers who were working with identical twins than for testers who were working with fraternal twins. Mm. Kind of suggesting the same thing that the twins were evoking the language environment they were receiving back from the testers. Mm. Um, so I saw that with the testers, but I hadn't seen that, that work with teachers, sorry, with parents that you described. So it's very interesting. It is really interesting. I think it speaks to something that I hear all the time from parents and especially parents that I speak to who have children with disabilities such as dyslexia or language disorder is that their their first thing is, oh no, I should have spoken to them more. I should have read to them more. It's the very first thing. And then there's a myriad of other things that come out like, well, I was working this extra job or, oh, you know, the other, the you know, his sister has some problems and I had to spend more time with it. It was just a very strong kind of guilt feeling that constantly comes through. So I do talk about that study quite a bit with parents because I think it's important for them to understand that. Uh, I think parents, um, most parents, the majority of parents are very responsive to their child. So they're actually just responding at what that child needs. So it's not that they're really, you know, doing something to cause this. And that's been shown so clearly with language disorder. I think that's really important. And I think the work you're doing just has such a strong um, influence and practicality for what we're thinking about now in schools, especially in terms of screening uh, and in thinking about how the environment, you know, interplays with response to intervention. And uh, I was wondering, I, I know you didn't do this study, but it's one I hear thrown around quite a bit about um, showing that as the environment, the literacy environment becomes more um, I want to say just consistent, I guess, or the same, similar, that then you see the genetic manifestation um, come out more obviously. So mm -hmm. have, what do you think about that finding and how does that relate to some of the things we're trying to do in schools with, you know, getting accurate screening results? Uh -huh. <laughs> that last question, that, that last bit of that question is good. It's hard to answer. It is. So, well, yeah, I mean, you purposely answer a slightly different question, like a good politician. Good, you should um, do that because I'm asking you to solve like world peace right now. So you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I actually have not seen that study that you're talking about directly. I would like to, to see it. Maybe um, I misinterpreted it. That's very possible. I thought it was one, I'll have to look it up. I think it was one that was in SSR journal. Yeah, no, and I, because why I would like to see empirical evidence yeah. based on what I tell people all the time, which is less of like, here's a study that this is, that shows it and more just, this is how it works. And so what, how this comes up for me quite a bit is occasionally I find myself you know, talking about my, you know, twin study findings to teachers and to educators kind of more broadly. And when I report things like, you know, the genetic influences of reading, you know, this decoding measure or, you know, um, uh, whatever it is, is, you know, approximately, you know, genes are like 55 to 60% of the variance in reading uh, at this age. Uh, what a common, um, response is, if it's all genetic, then what am I doing? Mm. Uh, you know, and that is a misinterpretation of at least what the modeling and behavioral genetics can tell us. And instead, that's a, uh, a genetic deterministic mm -hmm. idea. And that is definitely not what happens, right? Twin modeling, all we're doing is accounting for variance in a statistical way, which kind of sounds really like high level hand wavy. And I, and I don't mean to do that, but that's really what it is, right? It's this idea that in the sample that I'm studying, that the genetic influences contribute, you know, around 55% of the, you know, individual, the variance, the individual differences between the children of this one particular sample. And why it's important to say that is that what that what what happens is is that the samples environment so the the instructional environments that children are receiving or what at their home environments whatever it is their socioeconomic status mm -hmm. if that's more stable more common shared across those individuals then we see less total environmental variance right there's less variance in the environment it's more stable mm -hmm. and when there's less environmental variance in this given sample of children or twins then what happens is, is that mathematically the heritability or the genetic effects has to go up. And so when environments are stable, then genetically driven individual differences come out. So in reality, what I try to tell teachers when you see high heritability influences, it means that they are actually doing the best that they can. The best that teachers can do is provide kind of a stable, environmental influence, you know, stable across schools or across classrooms. Um, so that more standardized instruction usually means you kind of get the environment out of the way. And, and then uh, these genetically driven individual differences come out. It seems like what happens with environments, with context around children, that a negative context or a negative environment um, has kind of a, a, a larger proportion of a role. So like bad environments are worse than good enough or better environments. So kind of the best that we can do is make the environment around children good enough so that it kind of gets out of the way and allows children's kind of in, genetically driven individual differences to come out. It doesn't mean we can't intervene on it. I'm talking about variance, not mean, right? So we can still push children's scores up. We can still intervene. Even if something is completely genetic, we can still intervene. But um, from, at least from twin studies, the, the, the idea that, uh, yeah, the more you standardize, like you started, the home literacy environment, the less of a direct role you'll see of the home literacy environment in the end.
That makes a lot of sense. That's, I, that's what I was trying to say, but I didn't say it well, well obviously, because I'm with the background. No, no, you're not doing that exactly well. And I've just, I've never, I've seen it talking about like um, uh, across schools or across classrooms, but I'd never seen it across the home literacy environment. So I would like to see that. I think this was a classroom one. Actually, now that I think, uh, it, I think it was classroom because I don't think it was home literacy at all. And you would know, and I'm, I'm just almost positive this was instruction, but it, okay. did, but I like how you say it because it, it could be, um, like more of a statistical variation issue too, you know, that plays into it. But I also really like this idea of how you just explain the, the genetic predetermination. Cause I do think people feel pretty frustrated by that at times. Is it true? Is it a, is it one way to say it? Just correct me if I'm wrong. Is that you have a range of ability that you can accomplish that may be predetermined genetically and having a good environment will put you at the upper bound of that range? Is that ever something that you would say? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's, um, that's really kind of a theoretical concept. I don't love to be corrected by one of your listeners if somebody knows a study that actually has data on this. That theoretical idea is where I fall as well. <laughs> that's my belief, and that's how I think about it. Um, I think that even in behavioral geneticists, it's not entirely the case that everybody agrees with that theoretical idea. Um, but that's how I think about it as well. Yeah, it kind of gives you this set range and your environment can kind of can kind of push you around within that range. Yeah, that that yeah, that makes sense. I think that makes a lot of sense. And tying it to children who have reading difficulties, it may be that they have a genetic predisposition to have some difficulties, but maybe that difficulty would manifest more um, and meaning more severe. Actually, I won't say manifest more. That's kind of a different concept, but it would be more of a severe reading disability if they didn't have good instruction versus maybe it would be more towards the upper end, even though maybe it'll still be a, a, a struggle for them. Maybe it would be put them in a position where it would be less severe if they had good instruction. Yeah, yeah potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That I would really like to start test, really trying to test those ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think potentially with the some like technological advancements in molecular genetics where we actually can like, you know, measure genetic, you know, children's genetic, um, uh, you know, um, uh, they're potentially measure their genetic predispositions. Uh, that we might be able to see kind of the, the range of response based on those actual genes that you have and how they're responding to the environmental inputs that they're receiving. Mm-hmm. Um, that's more far down the road than we are right now, um, scientifically. But yeah, I think that's that's what would have to come next to really start getting, getting data to that idea. Mm-hmm. Oh, that would be that would be exciting to try out. I think as a parent, before I was a parent, I did view, and this is just, I'm parental bias. I'm just going to throw it out there. It's a little bit of parental bias here, but I definitely thought that maybe it was more nurture, you know, like I, I have a lot more control. I think I want, you know, I wanted to feel that I had more control. That's always a good feeling. And then I think as my children have grown, I've felt a little bit more like maybe nature. <laughs> yeah. Well, isn't that the joke too, that everybody believes in nurture with their first child and then in their second child, they suddenly become, oh, nature only. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I did the exact same parenting yeah. with this child, and look what's happened. That's basically <laughs> it. I mean, it's like, and the third one, I'm not even trying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like, just, whatever. Yeah. 
you're going to be who you're going to be. I always joke that being a behavioral geneticist has made me a pretty relaxed parent. Yeah. Uh, because I do. I'm like, you know, it's, I, I try to provide a good enough environment. Uh, and that's the level that I reach for most of the time. Was it good enough? Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it takes some of the, yeah, the guilt. It's still hard, though. It seeps in a little bit, for sure. Um, but uh, it takes some of those, I think, day-to-day -day stressors off. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, for me at least personally, I agree. I tend to see that I see the world that way too, especially now more and more. And so it does tend to help uh, with thinking about the stressors. But I'm just thinking about COVID too, and just the compounding factor of nature and nurture within COVID. So, for instance, um, you know, if you have a child who has ADHD and you you know, have put them in a school environment, which is very structured, and they have this supportive environment. And But then now they're at home, and perhaps one of the parents has ADHD, and the environment's ADHD-like and disorganized, and there's not a routine, then that could really confound some of the, uh, you know, this, this, this interaction of nature-nurture. Yeah, it definitely can. And it's kind of, you know, it's definitely the case that there will be differential impacts on children based on, you know, being at home during this time and kind of away from their normal instructional environments mm -hmm. for all sorts of reasons. Like you said, you know, uh, the, the based firmly in behavioral genetics. Yeah, you know, children that have, you know, ADHD like behaviors likely also have parents that have some ADHD like behaviors as well. You know, maybe not diagnosable, but, you know, kind of further towards that end towards ADHD. And so, yeah, then the environments might not be as structured at home. And this, that's just one example, but it can be kind of compounded across lots of different uh, examples. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's definitely the case that um, there will be kind of differential susceptibility kind of to the negative impacts um, right during, that are occurring right now. Mm -hmm. I guess the one positive could be that if parents think about what benefits them, then they could also think about that maybe benefiting their child. So, for instance, like maybe, you know, music relaxes you or getting outside in nature or, you know, maybe that could be something that would help your child, too, if you're sim if you're similar in some ways. Right. You know, that's the. Yeah, yeah. The that's, a, yeah that's a positive. I hadn't thought of before. But, yeah, I like that. <laughs> I'm trying to look for the silver linings. It's really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that what we should do in a pandemic? I don't know. It's really tricky. Very tricky. But I'm going to shift topics away, actually, because we have so much to talk about and I want to be yeah. mindful of our time. Another um, um, important endeavor that you're undertaking is this LD database. Now, tell me about that and tell me if I even called it the right thing and what it's about and what drove you to think about this um, endeavor that's pretty massive. Yeah, so it's called LD Base. Um, it's a uh, uh, a data repository um, for behavioral data related to kind of education. So it's kind of supporting the education field. I don't mean just by education, you know, education professors, but also like kind of anybody that collects, you know, data related to children and how they're doing in schools. Um, and so it's a NIH funded grant um, to build this data repository to hold data. So what, um, what was happening is that I was, you know, um, uh, have the privilege of being surrounded by people that I work with colleagues and kind of, you know, at my institution and other institutions that are successful and successfully getting, 
you know, grants and collecting lots of data, you know, IES grants and NIH grants and NSF grants and collecting all these data. Um, and then the data, for the most part, would just kind of stay on people's computers. Um, and, uh, and I knew that the NIH, uh, kind of all the federal agencies were really interested in kind of releasing these data from people's computers, right? To uh, that, the, that the data kind of belong to the public and can do much more um, when kind of, when more people kind of, you know, analyze data and are allowed to kind of think creatively about data, more innovative um, science comes out. And so what we decided to do, uh, so my co-PI is Chris Schatzneider here at FSU, and what we decided to do was build this data repository um, that would hold, um, uh, that would be available to our community. So it's specific, we're specifically making it for our community. There are other data repositories out there that are more generalist, um, but ours is for kind of the educational community and, you know, I'll have the look and feel that, you know, I, it will uh, be specifically adapted to, you know, our type of data. And uh, we're, you know, encouraging our community to consider um, storing their data in our data repository, but also storing it as openly as possible mm -hmm. so that others can use data uh, and reuse data uh, to lead to kind of, uh, I think, more scientific breakthroughs that way. Uh, I don't know about you, but when I, I typically always found that when I work with people outside of my own field is where like a lot more creativity comes from. Uh, and so that's kind of the thinking behind data too. When you have people kind of outside of your immediate research team approaching your data and thinking about new research questions that can be asked with your data, um, then maybe more creative um, research questions can come out of it. It also, I think, democratizes um, uh, access to data. Uh, so for people who, um, you know, haven't been able to get, you know, an IES you know, funded grants worth of data, uh, they'll have access to data that's high quality um, and uh, and can do innovative science, you know, wherever they are. And, you know, that would be, you know, graduate students potentially working at universities without resources like some universities have or junior faculty members someplace that just haven't gotten a grant yet, but need pilot data or need data to publish a paper for their tenure. So those are some of the things that we're hoping to do uh, with um, LD base. I love that. And I was just talking to a junior colleague uh, and she was asking me like, what do I do now? Now that my data collections, you know, not up and running anymore with COVID closures. I mean, it could be even more, it's always so important for the reasons you mentioned, but even now, even more so perhaps because so many people who had been collecting data now, their data collection has stopped. Um, not just, just for the listeners, not just because you know, children have stopped that, you know, their parents necessarily have stopped data collection, but the universities that approve data collection have shut down data collection in person for the safety of the investigators and in particular the participants. So now you have to either go online, it's hard to access patients. So we're looking for ways to publish data that's already out there. And this would be a, a great thing. Where are you in the process now? Like how far along? Yeah, we're about a year and a half into um, the kind of the technical creation of the data repository. Um, we have database, you know, uh, coders and creators working on it. Um, and also at the same time, we've been working with our community and uh, people with data um, that are working with us to get their data completely de-identified so it can be publicly released. Um, and frankly, even 
probably that that's definitely important. I don't mean to say that that's not important. That is very important, but also very important, but often more overlooked than de-identifying data is good data documentation. So good data manuals, good metadata. We're working with people to get that together so that it, their data is usable to somebody else. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, we have a technical team who's working on building the repository and the website that goes with it. And then also a team that's working with um, investigators to get their data off their computers, to clean it up, to get good documentation going and get it ready for the community to use. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're a year and a half into it and it's set to be released about this time next year, a little bit earlier than this. So it will be kind of fully available for um, uh, members of the community to upload their own data uh, and then also to use the data that's there. That's just so fantastic. And I have to say, it's, it might be surprising to some of the clinician and educators that are listening to the podcast that this wouldn't already be standard practice. It's kind of shocking if you think about it. I mean, you get money from the government, so taxpayer dollars, uh, to create this, you know, to collect data and to answer these research questions. And then what tends to happen, and I'm, I've done this many times, I'm, I'm sad to report, is you work on a grant and you need to keep your lab funded. So then the next grant comes and you're not quite done with the last grant. You're trying to finish some of the major analyses, but you then tend to move on to the next grant. And then the other grant is not as tended to. Um, and it seems like having this upfront is so critical because what happens, what's happened to me in the past is you always, I mean, I don't know, I always aspire to want to share the data publicly, but again, it's like, the attention, where's your attention at the time? And at the end of the grant, your attention is to the next grant. So even if you have the best intentions of getting the data out, you're just on to the next thing and it gets left to the wayside. So having something right up front to get this moving forward and having someone like yourself and your colleagues to help manage it is such a great centralized approach because that's the other thing I've dealt with personally as investigators, even if I want to do it, well, how do I do it? You know, what are the technical aspects involved? So I think that's really quite fantastic. And you're right, having a database that's not so general will also be very helpful um, to educators yeah. and shared questions. That's it. We're hoping it be the place that you're like, I wonder if there's data on that. Hmm? We're the place that you go to, hmm. um, whether it's for pilot data or a grant proposal or for just an idea that you're kicking around before you want to go collect data on all kinds of children because you know how intensive that is. Yeah. Did it work in somebody else's data? Mm -hmm. You know, two variables that maybe were, were, you know, just randomly collected in somebody else's data set. Are they correlated with each other the way you think they should be? Mm -hmm. um, it will be useful for meta analysts, mm -hmm. right? Now, rather than sending those emails and asking for, did you have, do you have, can you give me this correlation in your sample size? You know, you didn't publish it in that paper. You know, the data will be available for them. Or the type of meta analysts that like to combine across data sets, combine data sets, you know, that's also going to be available. You can combine, uh, you know, maybe someone, you know, especially in the field of disabilities, you know, or working with special populations, right? We're getting a sample size of 50 of a rare, you know, special population is a huge task, right? But maybe we can start to connect people who have their 50 you know, children here and their 50 children here and their 50 children here. And then together, they could become a data set of 150 children of that special sample, that special population. And then you can do more advanced statistics with that sample size. So, you know, there's, we're hoping that our community, yeah, kind of thinks of LD base 
as um, you know a, a, a solution to their data storage needs, and that would be useful to to PIs who are getting those big federal grants, but also a solution to people who don't have access to that type of data um, that they can uh, you know have good high quality you know uh, data available to them. I think it's it's just addressing so many issues, and you touched on the one too is that. Again, you know, researchers really don't publish null results. It's, it's, again, a kind of a dirty little secret there. You run it, oh, it didn't work out. Oh, I don't want to try to explain why it didn't work out. It's not that you're trying to hide it, but you always have this feeling in the back of your mind, like, well, maybe I didn't do it right. You know, maybe I didn't test it right. Maybe I didn't have the power. So maybe it would have been significant if I would have done it right. So you kind of question yourself, unless you're set up to test the null result, which most studies are not. Uh, so that addresses that too, because you could go on the database, test it out and see, you know, is this a null result um, before you start doing the work yourself? And then I think the reproducibility factor is huge, right? You can just go on there and reproduce it and add to it, um, you know, major, major issues, you know, in our field. So I, I think that's fantastic. If someone listening to the podcast wants to use LD base how do they do it and what would I know you said the timeline but what would they do if they're interested now yeah so if there's like PIs that are listening right now that want a place to be able to store their data this is we're coming into IES grant writing season uh, you know I can help that they can reach out to me I can help with data management plans that include using LD base and I can talk about the technical specifications that will be available to them because uh, it will be available to them, you know, by grant funding time if they write it into their grant now. You know, IES wants, uh, NNIH and NSF want to see those data management plans. And so uh, we can be written into those. Um, I'm also happy to talk about other options. You know, we will be a free option. Uh, and you know what you get with free, there, you, there would be some work that you'll have to do yourself as the PI to put data and we're into LD base and we're trying to make it as user-friendly as accessible as possible with all the documentation that's you know that can help PIs get there um, but there are also other data repositories in our community that are not free that will um, provide data management services for a fee so I'm happy to talk through that and kind of the difference between LD base and those other data repositories and what might be helpful for people so yeah I'm always happy to receive emails um, especially now as IES grant season uh, for uh, letters of support or help with the data management plans. Uh, and, uh, you know, if people are listening to this and months later, that's the, the offer still stands. And about this time next year, that information, ldbase.org will be fully running and online. You can go to it now, but it's just a, just a static page saying we're coming soon. Uh, and uh, all that documentation, like sample data management plans that use LDBase, even things like, um, uh, recommended informed consent language for data sharing. We're build, you know, we're building these resources for our community to use, um, all towards kind of having more open practices related to data sharing. Oh, I think that's great. I cannot wait, and I think it's just addressing so many issues, and it will make a big difference in science. Again, I'm going to shift topic a bit and uh, talk about some of the work that you've done to communicate science to a broader public, you know, the broader public and supporting uh, scientists as well. And your your use of social media. And uh, you are definitely the Twitter queen. And I would say that uh, when I first got on Twitter, I was really uh, inspired by the way that you communicated with um, the public, really. I mean, Twitter is a public thing. So when you're putting it out there, it's the public and you make those connections. 
what have you seen is the your you know big pro list? Like people ask me quite a bit actually. Like, should I get on Twitter? What do you think? And I have to admit, I was a late adopter to this. I can be an early adopter in some ways, but usually with social media, I'm I'm a late adopter. So I was a late adopter, but now I'm very sold. So what do you say as someone who I think was more of an early adopter of Twitter? What do you see as the pros and cons? Yeah, I well, I would say that the con, there's only one really kind of major con, and to do Twitter well, it does take time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you, uh, Twitter is not the sort of thing where you can just say, I'm going to log in for 15 minutes, tweet my content, and log out, right? It's really supposed to be an active, ongoing conversation that happens in the moment. And talking about COVID time, Twitter time is like its own thing as well. <laughs> and so uh, it does take time. And you have to give it the time and the effort for it to really work. Um, but the, uh, you know, when I I, I have a, um, you know, a, like a presentation, I give people that ask me to like talk about using Twitter as an academic. Uh, and uh, I, you know, pretty consistently say that that time for me is totally offset by the pros. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um uh, you know, kind of, I'm a very social person. And so I think the socialness of it, I really enjoy. I like being able to talk to people and to talk about my science and really kind of my Twitter persona is like, uh, you know, life of a scientist, you know, so kind of talking to people about, you know, a, a, a question about how you run your lab or, you know, a grant question or, you know, how, what do you do in this case? Uh, you know, there's a like a ready community that wants to kind of interact with you and to answer your questions and for you to answer their questions and to kind of be involved in. So I like the social aspect of it. But for thinking about like just straight, you know, most academics are kind of straight. You got to tick boxes, right? Whether it's for your promotion or tenure or to get a job or whatever it is. And I have found that Twitter has really allowed me to, to tick boxes and like usable, concrete ways um, that can be uh, useful for individuals at different aspects of their careers. So I've seen, you know, graduate students very successfully use it, uh, you know, uh, looking for jobs. Mm-hmm. I myself um, have hired a postdoc that I only knew on Twitter first. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I have also uh, been, a, a, the, none of them have come into my lab, but I have been the reason why two current students in our program or in our program was because of connections through Twitter. Um, I've received now invited talks because people know me from Twitter that I've never would have been part of my normal social circle, academic social circle. Uh, and uh, and some of those have been pretty prestigious talks and your paid talks as well, um, based on kind of my Twitter, prof- you know, being on Twitter. Uh, and kind of being myself on Twitter. It's actually quite difficult to not be yourself on Twitter. That's what I tell people. Uh, you know, you tend to get to know people. And so I think people tend to get to know me and, um, and you know, why, why, why do I like me for a talk, I guess? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. I think it's fantastic. I mean, I will go back to, you have a talk that you give about academic Twitter. Yeah, I'm happy to give it if you want your resources. I would love yeah, it. Because I've listed maybe three of the pros, and I think I have like 10 pros in my talk, but I'm just not remembering off the top of my head right now. All tangible, um, like, pros that I can give. Not just it makes me feel warm and fuzzy, because it does, but, you know, like, real tangible things that I think are useful for academics, including it's been useful for me in grant proposals. It's been, uh, you know, those types of things. I can I can give you all the exact. I can give you my thoughts. 
That would be fantastic. Cause I also think, I don't know if you talk about this in your talk, but I've been um, telling people that aren't on Twitter. It's a lot like a developmental stage. I guess I think about the world that way anyway, as a developmental scientist that mm-hmm. I think Twitter's kind of like that. Like I always say, like you get on first and you're like an infant. You're just, just, you're like just watching, <laughs> you know, and that's okay. <laughs> you're just learning. Yeah about it. Maybe you're thinking about, you know, what the benefits are to you and you're kind of getting your groove. And then I feel like you enter the toddler stage where you might like make one comment just like one time and you're kind of nervous about it. (laughs) You're just like, oh, okay, I just said something. I don't know. Do I like it? I don't know. And then this is when I discovered and seriously did not know this, that you can't delete or that you can't edit. I'm sorry. You can't edit. You have to just delete. And then that's like a toddler mistake, right? You're like, you do it and then you don't check it. And you're like, oh, I'll just edit it. Like I do in every other social media platform. And they're like, oh, I can't do that here. Okay, that was a toddler mistake. So then you just kind of, I feel like there's a growth period. You know, I'm clear. I'm actually feel like I'm only at adolescence, which to me, adolescence is like kind of what you said. Like, I feel like I'll just post random stuff I've done, but I'm not as comfortable with the interaction yet. I'll try, you know, but I'm in that like um, adolescence. (laughs) figuring things out uh but then i feel like you know i aspire to get to the adult stage where you are really comfortable you're really getting all the benefits and you're you know you're able to just kind of let yourself be and you can spend a little more time and you find out what's the groove for you but the reason i tell this to people is because i worry And I've seen this happen so many times. People get on Twitter and they automatically get overwhelmed and then they're just back out. They're like, I I just can't, I cannot do that. But I think if you think of it as a developmental stage, maybe you're more likely to stay because you might be forgiven yourself. I don't know. I do like that way of thinking about it. I do think that's how it works. Um, This is in the top. So people can look at it and see, I have like these recommendations of how to start it. I don't have the developmental stages idea. I like that. Um, But uh, uh, what I remind people is when you sign up for Twitter, your account is empty. Like there's nothing, you know, and Twitter. So I have isolated myself in what's called science Twitter and science Twitter is very deep. There's, you know, tens of thousands of users who identify into so- science Twitter alone. And then occasionally I hear about these other Twitters that exist. Like there's a knitting Twitter mm. there, you know, there is a politics Twitter. And it's equally as deep and I don't interact with them at all. Mm-hmm. So kind of why I bring that up is you can make Twitter be what you want it to yeah. be. And with, and it doesn't have to be overwhelming. You can choose who you follow, right? You don't have to hear anything unless you follow them. Mm-hmm. And there is more, unlike Facebook or other social medias where it's a little bit weirder to like follow or unfollow people, um, Twitter, it's a little bit more fluid. And so, you know, you don't have to follow somebody. You don't have to keep following somebody. That's more of the culture that's there. And so you can make Twitter work for you. Uh, and But you're right, it does take a little bit of work and you got to make it through those that state, those stages. You got to get to adolescence at least, probably to start to feel like it's actually working for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can feel more comfortable. Like the first time I did a thread recently, I was like, oh my gosh, so freaked out by it. Also, I just think it's, a, I've gone to conferences and I've used different ways of tweeting about the conference and different, just different ways, like thread within thread and all these different ways. And I thought, well, this is, this kind of is like, you're figuring it out, you know, cause it's, I'm figuring out which way I like or what, you know, what was the easiest. I also joked that I needed a bracelet called Twitter strong because you really do have to be Twitter strong too, because there was definitely a time last summer 
where I posted something. It was like a picture of a slide at a conference. It wasn't my slide. But actually, in the end, that slide turned out to be a bit erroneous. But then I was the one that took the hit. And I was like, I didn't get it. wasn't my slide. And, but you can't really be like, well, it's not my fault. I mean, you kind of got to take some ownership of like, well, I did post it on my page. And so then you have to yeah. come up, like, do I take it down? Do I not? But I just remember being like, okay, I got to be Twitter strong. It's okay. It's okay. It's going to pass, you know? <laughs> or you just also have to be Twitter strong because sometimes you say things and, and you do mean to say them a certain way and people don't like it. <laughs> you know, and you're just like, well, you can't please everyone, obviously. Yeah, why I love Twitter is that's it. I, I get to listen to voices I don't normally listen to, and they don't tend to sound like me. Yes. Uh, and it's been just such a wonderful growth moment for me to get to listen to these voices and uh, not have to demand their time to teach me, uh, you know, about their perspective, but instead get to really listen and, and, and think about it. Uh, and yeah, sometimes if they do follow me back, then like push me on something, but you're right. You, this is, it is a much different, um, kind of feeling than just talking with your friends or even your colleagues, you know, if you're at a conference together and like your group that you tend to have wine with, mm -hmm. you know, they tend to, you know, kind of have similar, a similar background and a similar way of thinking about things that you do. And in Twitter, it's much deeper community than that. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, I also went to the went through the stage of only posting gifts. That was a fun stage. Oh. <laughs> no, <way. laughs> a little. Bit. That, you know, that really can drive some people crazy, and I, I love to do it. <laughs> I know. You almost need a Twitter mentor too. I have a fantastic postdoc, Rosanna Komosedu, and she helps me with Twitter. Uh, she probably doesn't want me to tell people maybe because I don't want, she doesn't have to take ownership, but um, it's nice because you have the person you go to to like, how do I do this? What do I do? Yeah, I, I won't name names, but I have a few people who text me regularly and ask me, uh, I'm about to tweet this. Is this okay? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. It's probably good to have a friend that might tweet you and, or might contact you and say, put down the Twitter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah no it's been it's fun and I think that's really inspiring to um you know see how you've done managed it and also I just can't encourage enough the listeners of this podcast to check out Twitter although I think many of them do um, are on Twitter because they often find out about the podcast through Twitter but those who aren't just can't encourage you enough to check it out and and be accepting of who you are. It's okay to feel overwhelmed at first. And I would love to post that if you're okay with it, the slideshow you have, because I think that'd be so yeah. informative. Yeah, for sure. I think I gave it this past fall. So I think it's updated even like with how to start an account and things like that. So, so that's uh, great. Happy, happy Very generous. Thank you. Well, now I'm being mindful of our time and man, I just want to keep talking. It goes so fast, too fast. Always. It, does really go fast. Uh, it really does. Right. Um, okay, so I have two questions I always ask every guest. The first one is, what are you working on now that you're most excited about? <laughs> this is the hardest question, by the way. <laughs> I know, the last two questions, you know, you tell me, and I thought about it, and I've been thinking about it for months, and I still, here I am, in the moment, just verbal diarrhea and not answering your question. <laughs> well, you know what, though, Sarah? It is the hardest question. I really feel kind of bad. Um, clearly, I don't feel bad enough to change the question, but I do feel bad because it's almost like asking um, you to pick your favorite child or something, or your favorite That's friend. It. You love them all. I know I, I'm in the fortunate position to be able to pick the stuff that I am excited about now uh, and, you know, to be thoughtful about the things that I do. 
Uh, and so that's why I was really struggling because I'm like, you know, uh, I would say I really felt that shift in the last few years of like really kind of shifting towards uh, not not just low hanging fruit stuff, but like kind of more thoughtful stuff or I, I mean, my, my that just made it seem like my work before a few years ago wasn't thoughtful, but instead just really kind of like, what do I want to do next and what's most exciting to me? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, kind of all the projects I have going on right now, I would say especially kind of the LD based project because it's new and I'm learning totally new um, skills, you know, learning how to create a website, mm -hmm. you know, learning about user experiences, you, you know, those sorts of things. And so that's been fun because it's a new learning. Uh, and then I I love working on the projects that my students and postdocs come up with, frankly. You know, they are all different enough from me, uh, and I love that about my lab. Uh, and they push me in different directions with their own, like, in their own interests and their own background. Um, and so uh, I do, I love all the projects that I'm working on with my students. Each one of their papers are really interesting and, and also kind of, you know, really make me think and think in new ways. What a privilege so, we have to work with such bright and energetic and creative people in the field. I've often thought that my mentor, Hugh Katz, would always say, I learned from my students. And I kind of thought he was just saying that at the time to make us feel good. But now I realize what he meant because it's so true. Uh, you just learn so much from your students. It's such a symbiotic relationship and it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, they're really your closest colleagues, right? Yeah. You're the, they're the ones that you talk to the most. Yeah. And so they're thinking about an idea and they're reading of literature that they're reading because they're probably reading more for classes and other things than you are. I can, I'll speak for myself at least, definitely than I am. Oh. And so they're really kind of pushing you and finding kind of new edges and boundaries of where science is and where interesting research questions are. Uh, so yeah, they keep they keep me kind of on my toes. <laughs> I love that. So probably the most exciting thing you're working on is the cool things you're working on with your students. And that's really awesome. I, I love that. It's great. It's great. Okay, another one. This one's also a tough question. I like to save the tough ones for the end. What is your favorite book from childhood or now? Yeah, I know you. I, I already, I already texted you earlier and said I was finding this very, a very, very so stressful question. Uh, and so I am probably going to punt on it uh, and say I don't because I actually truly don't have a favorite book. I've mm -hmm. never had. Um, but I spent most of my life reading pretty avidly. I would say grad school a little bit kind of sucked it out of me um but up till grad school i read oh, quite a bit and so i what my answer was going to be for you is i remember spending many many years reading the entire babysitter's club series and the entire nancy drew series uh you know kind of one after another after another whipping through them and so that's what comes to mind when i think about you know like warm reading moments mm -hmm. um because I'm a kind of a lover of all books, I, that's why it's really difficult for me to identify one book that I really, really love. So. I really relate to you, Sarah. One, obviously, you said Nancy Drew, so right there, we're connected. But the other <laughs> thing is that for years on my lab website, that's where I did this, is I would have every person who worked in my lab put their favorite book on the website. But I never did it. I refused. And I was like, you know, I'm the director. I don't have to do this. <laughs> we have to do it, but you don't. And I was like, no, I can't pick. I can't pick. And I really only for this podcast had to like finally take a stand and choose Nancy Drew. But I, I'm with you. I get so hard and it changes all the time. I mean, it's really, really tough. And 
Yeah, like I'm right now I'm reading some like amazing books that are on, you know, kind of um, like systemic racism and patriarchal like feminist books. And, you know, that's right for me right now. Um, But, you know, it wouldn't I wouldn't have even said that if you, you know, 10 years ago that that would have been one of my favorite books, you know, so it totally changes in kind of your moment of your life. Uh, And um, and so, yeah, I'll stick with some. What are some of the ones you're, what are some that you're reading that you like? Cause I'm also reading several of those kinds of books. So what are some of the ones you're reading now that you like? Uh, so uh, you're seeing how terrible my memory is of things. I'm like, I wish I was in my bedroom for my second book. Oh, I so know. I, well, I asked you that question, Sarah. And then I thought, oh, can I even think about the names of the books I'm reading right now? Like the cover through and how the use. <laughs> the color is red. It's a middle. I think that one's called the Seven Necessary Sins of Women. Or oh goodness. Well, I'll look it up for the podcast anyway, so you don't have to worry about it. I'm actually looking right now in my Audible list because I do a lot of listening to books as I walk or commute, and I love the one. Uh, so you want to talk about race? I love that one. Okay. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Um, and you said it's the seven, I should look that up. So it's the seven sins, seven sins. No. Yeah. The seven necessary sins for women and girls. Oh, that's awesome. Yes. I've heard you talk about that. And I've also seen others. I want to put that on my list. I think that sounds. Yeah. That's the one I'm reading right currently. Uh, and I, every time I read them, like, yes, yes. No, that's fantastic. And I think that's great to share uh, with my students, too. And I think the listeners, um, you know, would love to hear about some of these kinds of empowering books. I think for some reason, maybe the COVID closure in terms of like trying to move through it a little or, you know, sustain it. Those are going to be some nice things to sustain, you know, and empower us a little bit to think about more deeply when we're having to be in this mode. Um, yeah, because I really am hoping, and this might be Pollyanna of me, that this is a moment where we start potentially thinking about social changes, yeah. right? Things are going to have to change from here. And so how can I be a voice of that change is something that I've been thinking of. And, you know, whether that's, I mostly stick kind of with how change can happen in academia uh, and supporting, you know, women and, you know, people of color in academia. But, you know, also more broadly to my community and kind of other ways I can kind of be be someone who who can advocate uh, for change is what I'm hoping to be able to do and learning trying to self self teach a little bit of how to get there. Oh, you're doing it already. I mean, you're definitely doing it. But I see your I I feel your sentiment of like a reset button a little bit. I mean, it does create a moment of pause right now. I mean, I am happy to report I'm finally getting out of the bread eating stage. Um, and starting to get into a different stage, which is really nice. <laughs> I was in the bread baking and eating stage for quite some t- more time than I want to admit. But now I'm actually getting into the more positive stage. <laughs> I am firmly still in the joggers every day stage. Yes. So. Good. Great. I'm, I'm getting there. I, yeah, that's actually what I'm doing. I'm moving away from the bread and moving more to the walking. It's much healthier. <laughs> Much better for the wardrobe, that's for sure. <laughs> my son recently pointed to my closet and said, Do you wear clothes out of there? <laughs> my five year old, I came out of my bedroom the other day. A few weeks ago, I decided on a Saturday night to actually put on a dress mm-hmm. like just, just a regular sundress, nothing fancy. 
And I, no joke, my five-year-old looked at me when I came out from after my shower and was like, Ma, you're wearing clothes. <laughs> you're like, yes, it can happen. <laughs> well, think about their little, you know, experience of life. Like, I mean, a week is like a year to them. So they're probably like, wow, mom, you haven't worn that forever. I actually put makeup on once and my kids thought I looked like a clown. I mean, no joke. They were like, what? My son's like, what is around your eyes? What is that? What's, what is, I'm like, God, it's been that long since I even put eyeliner? <laughs> the whole new world. <laughs> it really is. Well, thank you for taking time out of this whole new world to talk to me on the podcast. I think the listeners will hopefully uh, be able to have some time to listen during this period. Um, and I think they'll enjoy hearing what you had to say. So thank you so much, Sarah. Yeah, thank you, Tiffany, for inviting me. I'm happy we got to do this. Check out www.seeherspeakpodcast.com for helpful resources associated with this podcast, including, for example, the podcast transcript, research articles, and speaker bios. You can also sign up for email alerts on the website or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other listening platform so you can be the first to hear about new episodes. Thank you for listening and good luck to you making the world a better place by helping one child at a time.